Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, episode 20. This week, we have real estate investor Aaron Mazrillo, based in sunny Southern California. He started in construction, became a wholesaler, real estate flipper, landlord, and does other kind of projects like commercial. He has seemingly done it all over the last 20 years. Uh, we talk about the data that drives his business, marketing tactics that he's deploying and trying, and how to build systems and automations to make things scale. And uh, one of my favorite parts is a prospect versus a suspect. <laughs> that and much more. Don't miss the show this week. Hey, welcome to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris and with co-host Sean O'Toole with Property Radar. And today we have got Aaron Mazzarillo. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Where are you parked today? At the beach or more uh, Inland Empire? <laughs> my background is the beach. I actually took this photo, but uh, I'm in the Inland Empire. It's where I, I am out here Monday through Thursday evenings. And then I'm at the beach Thursday night through Sunday night. Sometimes that bleeds over to Monday, depending on how I feel. But <laughs> How good the surf is <laughs> like, the fishing? I, you know, I don't surf anymore. I had a... Uh, catastrophic serving accident where I actually drowned and was drug drug out of the water and resuscitated on the beach, uh, ended up in the hospital, uh, in the neurological ward and walked out of the hospital the next day. So I said, you know what? It was fun, but I'm over it. <laughs> so okay. you'll stick to fishing. <laughs> it, you know, I, I find that surfing is is more of a brutal full contact sport than than kickboxing was. <laughs> that's you that's know what? That's right. That. You have a, a kickboxing background. Do you still practice? I, I don't because now I have a a pretty bad neck. I have some some problems in my neck, so I don't anymore. And but I, I watch it almost every day. And, and it's like, you know, just a tear rolls down my cheek. But <laughs> this is what it is. I find other things to do. So we so, always just keep pushing forward. Now, when did you get into the real estate game? Uh, I, I had a, a tax. So I, I've told this story to a couple a couple times before. Most people are like, oh, you know, I was working my crappy job and I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then I you know went to some seminars. And I started real estate. I had a great job. I actually really liked my job. And I was making, at the time, I thought, a ton of money. It was more money than I'd ever made before. It was a couple hundred thousand a year. The problem was, I was an estimator for a subcon. We were subcontractors, so basically a, a construction company. So the only write-offs I had were, you know, pencils and paper and uh, you know, gas and a leased vehicle. So I was paying very large estimated quarterly taxes, which I did not like doing. And I talked to my. I had some kind of interest in real estate. I, I like I had been reading some books and I had read the Rich Dad Poor Dad book after I saw the author on uh, Oprah, you know, I figured, well, she's got a good reputation. She must, you know, he must be okay. So, you know, I, I was kind of like reading some books that I could find at Barnes and Nobles and stuff, but uh, it, I got into real estate because I had a tax problem and, and I asked my CPA, uh, I was like, this has got to stop. I'm bleeding money here. I, I, I work so hard. I make all this money and I'm giving back 50 to 60% of it to the government every, every three months. He's like, well, you know, you don't have any overhead. So what do I do? He's like, get yourself some overhead. I, was like, I use paper and pencil. Like how many, do I have to go to Costco and buy like a pallet of pencils? Like what kind of overhead? Like where would I store that? You know? So I, well, what do your other clients do? What do they do? You know, you must have other people that are in my situation. He's like, yeah, they buy real estate. I was like, I'm going to go buy some real estate. So I just, yeah, I just started buying houses from the MLS, paying whatever they were asking. But this was early 2000s. Make a phone call, get a loan. Not a problem. You know, go to a seminar, 
some guy selling turnkey new construction. I'll take one of those. (laughs) I was buying stuff stuff everywhere. I had stuff in five states. I was buying whatever, whatever I could to stop the bleeding. Uh, But then that just turned into a new kind of bleeding. So, yeah. And then I actually, uh, it was Jack Fullerton. We all know him. Great guy. He, he turned me on. Actually, the story goes back one step further. Steve Dexter pointed me in the right direction. He finally pointed me to Jack Fullerton who uh, bribed me to go to a Pete Fortunato seminar. And I went there and once I got there and I saw what people were doing, I met people there. I was like, this is what I'd rather be doing. This sounds really cool and fun, right? Because I'm still negotiating, negotiating large contracts, which is what I was doing in construction. But now I, I don't only get 5% of the, the, the gross, like a commission. Now I actually get the house or the equity. And I, and I kind of, and it's funny because I was also a licensed real estate broker at the time. And I had never even been to an open house. Uh, I had just taken the classes and passed the test. And it's like, oh, you're an agent. I was like, oh, cool. And I live near Irvine Valley College. So I, at night, I had nothing to do and no kids. I would just take night classes. And I was like everything, electronic music and yoga and everything. So uh, uh, I, I had taken all the classes for, uh, for real estate. And I saw, oh, I, I went and took the test. And then I was a broker. And I, I had no idea how to do anything. <laughs> Straight to broker. Yeah, I was eight. Well, because I had a college degree. And at the time, you could yeah. be a broker if you had a four year degree. So I had a college degree and I had taken these classes. So I had no idea how to do any paperwork or nothing. And here I am, a California licensed real estate broker, which is scary, right? So, scary. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I, I was just buying houses uh, out of the MLS. I thought getting my broker's license would help me uh, get better deals, but you know, I could save a commission, but yeah, that's, that's not the way to do the business. So, <laughs> so I lost my train of thought a little bit. My assistant came in and was like, ah, it's important. Like nothing's important right now. Leave, leave, leave. So <laughs> I don't remember where I started on that path, but I got distracted. So, so 0506 come around. You sw- did you switch gears at all? Were you still buying out of the MLS? So I was, uh, 05 and 06, I was still, yeah, that's, that's like my prime time of buying straight out of the MLS and paying retail and going to seminars and buying whatever people were selling as far as, oh, we got houses here and houses there. Uh, I just, I just didn't know any better. Uh, oh, so Jack had sent me to Peter Fortunato. I, I liked what Pete taught. I wanted to learn more about that. I started to kind of get away from the MLS stuff, but I didn't know how to market. I didn't understand how to talk to sellers. So I started going to uh, a local real estate, a landlord meeting that wasn't far from my office. And, and I, uh, I would go in the, it was every Friday morning, it was a breakfast. And I'd get there, I'd get to my office, I'd you know, kind of get sorted out and then I'd leave and I'd come back in like an hour. And then next week it was like an hour and five minutes. And the next week it was like an hour and 15 minutes. And then, you know, after a couple of months, it's like I would leave on Friday morning and I would come back Friday afternoon. I was just staying with all this. I was like, I want to be like these guys. Like, they just hang out all day. This is the best. <laughs> and Nick Blackwell was there. And he sent me to, uh, to uh, the, his, you know, it was his private group at the time, his mastermind at Sizzler, the Tuesday lunch. Right. They're still doing that. It's not private. Everybody can go, but it's not a Sizzler anymore. Uh, so I started going there. And I had equity, so I had HELOCs, right? Because if you have equity in 2006, you got to have a HELOC, right? So I had HELOCs and, you know, with six-figure checks you could just write for fun. Uh, so I started buying from the wholesalers in the room. And one in particular, Mike, we all know Mike, right? So I started buying from one wholesaler because I had heard a lot about him, but I'd never met him. And I really wanted to understand what he was doing. So everything he had, I wanted to buy. And, and so I started buying stuff from him. And then the market kind of melted down. But while I was buying from him, I was studying his paperwork and I was asking him questions. And 
I started to kind of figure out what I needed to do to, to walk away from the construction business and then go back into the construction business, right? So <laughs> I'm going to have you pause just for a second because I don't think most people know who you're talking about, actually. Like we have a broader audience. So Mike Cantu is the guy, right? And um, his he he doesn't do a lot of speaking. He doesn't do much training and that kind of stuff. He did put together this series of... Uh, uh, I guess audio recordings or book called what was it? Real Estate Island. Does don't get voted off Real Estate Island. Don't get voted off Real Estate Island. And I have to say, I've read a lot of the books and other things over the years, and and that is one of my, you know, all time favorites. Just like how practical it is, and you know, kind of down to earth, and like talking about how to negotiate a deal. And, you know, put it in just really good terms. It's one of my favorites. Mike's superpower is taking very complex things and making them extremely simple. That's just, I mean, he can do that better than anybody else. I I always tell him I want to create a children's book because he is famous for his hilarious one-liners of doing just that. Taking something complex and irritating and simplifying it into a one-sentence hilarious just moment and i'm like i want to create an illustration book for kids to introduce them to real estate no no, no. we we need the tau of mike and it can be cantuisms right cantuisms <laughs> i've had this in my head and i live next to him you know and i'm just like i gotta go over there like on a friday night and just like try to get him to start feeding me his cantuisms and writing them down and documenting like the tau of mike cantuisms yeah so uh, All right. Very, well, very, very smart guy. How, how did you survive the downturn? Like, because you're you you're saying you've got you're taking out loans, you've got HELOCs, so that means you're tapping all the equity of these things to buy more, and you're still, doing it all. Still at the paying off one market. of those today. Still, still paying off one of those HELOCs today. So, I mean, I can write the check, but it's like it's like now it's gone into the fixed rate mode, or well, it's uh it's not fixed rate; it's the amortizing mode. So, uh, you know, the, but the interest rate's like 2.75%. So I was like, do I really want to write that, pay that off? Or so, yeah, so I had a lot of houses and, and I, I always felt like for me, I want to be a person of my word, right? I want to be uh, somebody who says I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it when I say I'm going to do it. And that to me is more important than anything else. So I had houses that were way over leveraged. I was over a million dollars in, in negative debt. But I had made the commitment to pay these loans. And I had tenants. I was a good landlord. I had studied MrLandlord.com at the time. That was a great resource for uh, learning how to be a landlord. And I'd read some, there were some books that, uh, you know, that had been published on landlording. And there was a local guy who wrote one. And so I, I felt like my landlord chops were pretty good. Uh, how, how many uh, doors did you have? Yeah. It wasn't many. Uh, maybe between 10 and 15. I don't remember. It wasn't a lot. Right. So, but when you have $300,000 houses that are now worth, I mean, the neighbors were selling for 60 or 80 grand in 2009 and you had 200, well, I had, shouldn't say you, I had $250,000 loans. It was brutal. And and at the time there were, uh, the the interest rates in 2007 were between, I think six and 7%, around six and a quarter, six and a half for landlords. Right. So I was paying, a pretty a pretty good rate on them. I was getting clipped pretty bad every month, but I was flipping houses and we did some great deals. And, and I think that in time, things work themselves out. And, and Jack Miller used to have a saying, just get the houses, dig your nails in and hang on, right? So I kind of thought 
this will turn around. This will get better. It's not going to last forever. It's, it's just a temporary bleeding. And I saw a lot of people doing strategic foreclosures, which I thought was extremely unethical. Maybe from a business sense, it made sense, but I, I didn't want to do that for myself. I wanted to have whenever I do an application and I knew inside that I always wanted to do bigger things. I wanted to get 3 million, 5 million, $10 million loans. And, and on those loan applications, I imagine there would be questions like, have you ever had a foreclosure? Have you ever had a bankruptcy? And, and I always wanted to say, no, I've never had that. That's never been a part of my business model. I've always stepped up and made my payments when, when I had a commitment. So uh, I just kept working, uh, flipping houses more in 2008 and nine, uh, wholesaling more. And then, like I say, in time, things work themselves out. Suddenly I was getting like these FedEx packages unsolicited. And it's like, we have to refinance your house. And it was harp. And I had all these houses were harp loans. So they went from six and a half or six and a quarter to 30 year fix at like four and a half. And suddenly they're all cash flowing like crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it, it, if you dig your nails in and hang on, Jack Miller was right. Eventually things work themselves out. And I still have some of those houses today. And they're doing phenomenally well and they're worth more than what they were worth back then. So it's, it's, it's all worked out. It's a small world. It's a small world and people talk. I don't think some people really appreciate that and that, uh, you know, your reputation means a lot in this business. So we've had a chance to work together over the last decade and I really appreciated your perspective and your ethics and your honesty. So thank you for, you know, playing that role in our industry. We need more of that. So sometimes I can be brutally honest and that might show through on my Facebook profile, but I, I don't use that for business. It's more of entertainment, which it's is probably definitely gonna have you to, give to up my own detriment. <laughs> we're definitely going to have you give up your uh, Facebook uh, uh, profile so people could follow you because it's, it's, uh, it's a fun, uh, fun follow. <laughs> I try to tell people, just remember, I'm laughing when I'm writing this. I'm not trying to insult you. Like, you just all can have a good time. So, I, yeah, it's social media. It's not anti-social media. I'm not trying to be a jerk. <laughs> but, you know, I'm Northeast. I'm from the Northeast. I'm New England. I'm from Massachusetts. You know, uh, we have a reputation back there. Sarcasm is how we communicate. So, I apologize well, in advance. Uh, your kickboxer uh, background, I guess, makes you not afraid to put yourself right in the middle of things like when riots were going on and you're standing out front with the baseball bat protecting your properties. Uh, it was uh, maybe not with the baseball bat, but it felt like that. <laughs> it, it wasn't a bat. It was actually a... <laughs> okay. <laughs> with something. Yeah, it was something, right. but it wasn't a bat. It was a little more effective than a bat, and I'm very well trained in using that, that, that uh, tool. So, yeah. yeah. I was definitely down in downtown Riverside protecting my property. You know, right. you can protest all you want, but don't don't destroy people's personal property. That's unacceptable in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, don't disagree. Okay, so we're uh, we're getting through. Uh, you 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 dug your uh, nails in, hung on, and now you land in probably the greatest period of time to be a real estate investor of Hall history, which was you know, 2009 through 2012? The decisions I made back then have, uh, they, they've allowed me to, to make better decisions today or, or make easier decisions today. So the, the decisions I made back then, now it's the houses that I bought, that I kept, they allow me to show up at work when I want. 
and and I, I try to run it like a business and a company, but at the same time, I don't need to. It's more uh, to reference back to Mike again, scoreboard. It's just more for like you only need to beat the team by one point to win, but you know what's an extra twenty or thirty points? That's that's okay too, right? So. Uh, you know, now I feel like I'm in this more for the challenge of getting that next deal and for the fun of, of cashing that big check, not because I need it to go buy groceries and gas. So, Before we jump into what you're doing, there's some bad feedback somewhere. Sorry. Um, Before we jump into what you're doing today, talk to us about that period from 2009 to 2012, what you did, how you put yourself in a position to take advantage of that. And, and, put yourself in the position you are in now? Like what was, what was kind of the key to your success through that period? So I, I had a background in basically cold calling, doing uh, sales calls. And, and I, had, I felt like I had, I had some skills. I, I, I developed a skill set that it put me in a good position to transition into real estate and talking to sellers. And I was listening to, um, I don't even know if you'd call it a podcast back then. I was listening to like a, a weekly seminar where, uh, it, the, back then the, the gurus would, they would do a recording, like a conference call, and then they'd mail it to everybody on a CD. Right. So I'm talking like Richard Roop, like I was in his club. So I'd get the CD and I'm listening to it. And Ryan Scala's on there complaining that he has too many leads. I was like, what? <laughs> Who has too many leads? Right. Especially today. Right. I mean, there's no comparison. So I, I tracked down Mike. And I'm like, who is this guy, Ryan Scala, that's complaining about too many leads? He's like, oh, he lives in Corona. He's an investor. So I, I got to meet this guy and I got his phone number and he had built way ahead of his time. He had built an amazing CRM and it did phenomenal mail tracking. And, and I'm sure he showed you his latest stuff. Yeah, Sean, that you've seen. Yeah. I mean, he's a great coder, right? He's a great idea guy and a great coder. So he had built this amazing CRM and he showed it to me. I'm like, I need to be on this. So he had all these leads. So I just started going through his leads and, and digging out the gold in there. And, and we started closing deals. And once we started closing deals, he's like, Hey, you want to partner up and work full time? And I was like, yeah. So I'd actually drive to his house Monday through Friday and sit in his house. And we were, we were sending mail and we were going after REOs, but we were mostly focused on older absentee homeowners. That was really our target demographic. And we did pretty well back then. Probably my biggest regret was A, not keeping more houses and B, wholesaling too many of the deals that we got. I wish we'd flip more because we left a lot of money on the table. So. Right. Yeah, that is the downside of wholesaling. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, I guess I find with investors, everybody looks at the cash, right? The total cash. And um, one of the things you need to think about too is if you have an available pool of capital, right? What makes, what really separates good investors from bad and where, where wholesaling can actually be good is your ROI is based on how well you keep that cash deployed, right? So if I've, if I've got a million dollars, right? And I do a deal that makes, you know, 10 grand, 1%, right? But I do that in a day, and I do two of those a week, my, my total return on capital over the year is going to be much better than somebody who did a deal that made 20%, but took them a year. For sure. I, so, I, 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 like, I like the snowball effect. So when I was in, in the construction business and doing estimating, I would get a deal and I'd be excited about it. And, and the guy kept, he was kind of coaching me. He's like, well, listen, it, it's, you, you got to keep working. 
and get the next deal and the next deal and keep lining them up because I know you sold this contract. So I was selling windows to multifamily builders. Well, they don't go out and build 300 units at once. They do it in phases. So it might take a year. So I would get a little bit of a check and a little bit of a check. And he's like, well, you have to get this snowball effect. So once you start that building your snowball, it's going to start throwing off more and more money, more consistently, faster, and then your income is going to exponentially go up. And so that's why I like the flipping business is, is that I always try to have stuff in escrow that I'm buying at the same time, stuff in escrow that I'm selling, and then a pile of inventory that we're rehabbing. So we always have stuff coming to escrow and, and build the snowball effect where you can consistently get these five or six figure checks on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, or, you know, every two months, if you don't have that much volume, but it, it, you leave half of that money, at least on the table when you're wholesaling, unless you're, you know, an excellent buyer. I, for me, I always felt like wholesaling wasn't a business model. It was a way to disbo excess inventory. Right. So I, I think the number one thing people should focus on is raising private money because that'll help you grow faster. If you have more money, that allows you to do more deals. So if you rate, it will like spend one or two hours a week focused on just like my financial Friday. I'm going to work on my private money game. You raise private money, you get enough private money behind you. It allows you to work on that snowball to build up your inventory of flips. And then as you get more leads in and you run out of private money, I can wholesale those off. And that gives me the cash flow today to solve my immediate cash needs, but have these bigger checks and the work's coming. So for me, that's the business model I like best. And I rarely wholesale anything anymore. And you do keep though as well. So how do you, how do you make that decision? Cause that's, that's one of the other things that's really hard, right? As a flipper and okay, I'm going to make 30 grand on this deal today or I can go rent it out and I'm going to make $200 a month or you know whatever. Like it, that's a pretty hard trade-off. So how do you decide what to, to keep and how do you have the discipline to do that? Two things. The first one, which I, my friend was high volume wholesaler here in California. He's doing a ton of deals, more than a hundred deals a year. And, and he was just wholesaling, wholesaling, wholesaling. And, and one day I said to him, I said, you know, why, that's a great house in a great neighborhood. Why are you going to wholesale it? He's like, dude, I'll make 40 grand on it. I was like, yeah, but if you keep it and rent it out, that 40 grand check is still there. It hasn't disappeared just because you rented the house out. Maybe you get a little less because you actually closed on it. You funded it. You did some work on it. You rented it out. But if you get the tenant out and I mean, in this environment, that's a little more difficult, but you know, pre COVID you could get the tenant out in 60 days or you know, 30 days if they're less than a year. And, and maybe make more money on a full retail sale. So that kind of changes perception. She's like, man, it, I never really thought about that. I said, yeah, or you could sell it to another landlord who might pay more than the guy who wants to flip it because it's rent ready or it is rented out. And there's a good tenant and they're paying market rent. There's a fellow investor landlord who might be interested in that. So I just think that mentality is knowing that that check, just because you kept the house, that check hasn't gone away. And the flip side of that is coming from a high tax bracket and paying lots of taxes. I got into real estate to get out of the tax, the, the, the game of, you know, taking money and then giving it back to the government. I, I wanted to keep as much money as possible. So, so you're basically doing enough flips to fund your operations and food and, and, and taking care of yourself and anything, any profits you generate above that, you leave them in the deals and keep them. Is that kind of a rough way to manage your, your, your taxes and income? Well, I've, I've, become a, I've become a little more picky 
because having the stuff that I bought in the 2009 to 12, it's allowed me to do that, right? So I've become a little more picky. So in the beginning, it was like, oh, I'll keep that rental in Banning. I'll keep that rental in Hemet. And those are, is the word tertiary? Aaron's good with vocabulary, like these secondary markets, right? So, yeah. you know, third, third markets, right? They're third world markets, right? There's nothing wrong with those markets. They're just very far away from my core business, right? So I would keep houses in Banning and, and, and Hemet and, and places that were like on the, the outskirts of, I don't want to say civilization, but the outskirts of where the, the, the core population, the work, the, the jobs and all that, I would, I would keep these houses because I knew I could grow the equity up and, and, and keep those houses. But now it's to the point where if I buy a house in like an A neighborhood near a good school and flipping it, knowing that, hey, I've been in business almost 20 years and I've never bought a house in that neighborhood before. What are the odds that I'm going to get another one unless I pay retail? They're, they're probably slim to none. It'd be crazy for me to sell that house. So it'd be better if I sold something in San Bernardino or just took the money from this next flip and, and kept that A plus or even B plus neighborhood house, which I don't get the opportunity to buy very often, which leads me into when I drive through those neighborhoods and I see a guy flipping a house, it, just, it makes me think that guy hasn't figured this game out yet. He, he's doing it all wrong. Why would you sell that A plus house that you bought at a wholesale price? to get a highly taxable check of short-term capital gains. I, I, that's not the business model I want. So it's really <laughs> all about tax management. The whole strategy is about tax management, which is a bit scary now because we don't know where that's all going to go. Talk to us about, <laughs> I mean, the, the markets are betting that it's uh, not going to go too crazy for us. Um, it appears. Uh, so uh, talk to us about your, your, you know, game today. Like, you mentioned cold calling is a personal skill, right? I, that's one of the strongest, I think, skill sets, like people that are good at door knocking, people that are good at cold calling. Nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to like get some magic list, right? Uh, you know, do something super simple where they press a big easy button and suddenly get a call and buy a house with $100,000 equity. And, and we know that's not how it actually works. Walk us through a little bit what, you know, you recommend to folks today who want to get into this business of what it, what it really takes to, um, to buy, you know, buy off-market deals. So quickly, just to, to touch back on something you said is about these like secret lists, these magic lists, right? I, I mentioned that to one of my friends. Oh, this guy's mailing this, this kind of secret list that he is like secret. Is, are there neighborhoods I don't know about? Is there like a secret community? And I, I was kind of like, yeah, he's like, if it's a house on the street, it's not a secret list, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that makes a lot of sense. It's just, you know, maybe there's some other criteria in there, but every house out there is is known and you can find out information about it. Maybe you need to set up some certain data points that you're looking for to add that particular house to your list that matches your marketing message or whatnot, but there's no secret list, right? I mean, everybody's basically high equity, uh, long-term ownership. I mean, there's not a really a lot of people are going after these days. I, I want to pause you just right there because you just said the most important thing ever. It's a list that matches your message, right? Yeah. There is no secret list, but there is huge magic in taking a good, a, a, a list that matches a message, right? So 
that targets those specific people, but it's about the message and then finding the list that matches the message, in my opinion, versus the other way around. I, I always like to think of, uh, when I try to explain that to people about marketing, it's like, imagine you own a hamburger stand. If you stand outside the door and try to con every person in, into E, you're gonna get lots of no's and be very disappointed. What you wanna find are the people that, that, that like meat, right? You wanna to try to cater to the vegetarians. They need to have some money, right? So they need equity. And there's the whole sub two and, and you know, all that nonsense, you know, uh, there's that whole market. Uh, but generally speaking, you need that, they need to have some equity or some money and, and then they need to be hungry, right? You might have money and love hamburgers, but if you just ate, you're not coming in my, so yeah. So you got the, the message, we sell hamburgers and, and now I'm going to cater to those who are ready, willing, and able, they, they want to buy what I'm selling. They, they need what I'm selling and they, they have the ability to take advantage of my services. So and I think uh, there's a difference between the $2 hamburger joint and the $12, you know, fancy burger joint too. Right. And that's a different message to a different market. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So if you're looking to get started in this business, just doing mail is going to be extremely difficult in today's market. So this is, you know, early November 5th, 2020, right now today in the Southern California market, if you're just doing mail to absentee homeowners, you're going to throw away a lot of money. You need to be more focused, uh, like more of a sniper shooting a rifle instead of a shotgun approach, right? So, well, I think your best opportunity probably lies in driving for dollars or looking at uh, tax default uh, you know, we can't really get eviction information here. That's very accurate. And currently there's none of that anyways. So tax default code enforcement, if you could get somebody who's on both of those lists or, and then take it another step further, if you get somebody who's tax default, they got code enforcement issues and they're a landlord who lives out of state, you know, you got, you got the magic. Yeah. You got the magic number. That, uh, are you getting letters on your houses in Florida, Aaron? No, I'm just <laughs> Yes, I get text messages on all my rentals in Florida. <laughs> but they're probably just pulling like an out-of-state owner list or something very generic. And then, you know, doing some broad. So we do texting here. And I mean, you have to send a lot of text messages, a lot of text messages to find a good deal. So I come back to, you know, you mentioned driving for dollars, right? And I always tell people, even if you're going to pull a list, like pull a list and go start by driving that list and knocking on some doors and talking to those folks, because you probably can't develop a good message until you actually understand who that person is you're talking to. And how much do you think that's an issue? Like, do you find for yourself, like you connect with certain types of buyers better than other types of buyers? Like there's doors you knock on. And if, you know, a particular person answers like, you're no way you're getting a deal. Cause you just, you have a, a tough time chatting with them. Right. So like some you people, yeah, some people can be very standoffish. Some people can be angry, but the response is not, you don't respond to anger with anger. You respond to anger with, you know, uh, you back off a little bit, say, Hey, all right. You know, Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to disturb you. Uh, so we send text messages and generally we'll, we'll end it with something that, causes them not to respond with anger. So, you, you know, I, I don't want to give away all our goods, but we, right. we have a statement in there that, that it doesn't solicit an angry response from people. So we've been able to really dilute that down a lot. We don't get many of those anymore where when we first started, 
yeah, it's a lot of anger responses. So like the other day I was driving in my neighborhood and I seen a, a, a house that I've been stalking for months. And I like put like people say, Oh, what do you, I like to leave behind. I like to put something behind. So I'm knocking on the door. There's nobody home. I try to skip trace it. I can't find the people. It turns out they've passed away. So I'm putting like bandit signs wedged in their, in their screen door. Not, not, uh, you know, a door hanger or a stick. I'm putting an entire bandit sign in the front door. Like you can see my message from the street. So I find out that, it, you know, it turns out the, the, the air happens to be a guy who's been on TV flipping houses. So not much of an opportunity there, but at the end of the day, this is nothing more than a conversation. Nobody needs a negotiation seminar. So if I, I see you at the side of the street, you know, taking out bags and bags of trash of this house and the front doors open and the windows are open, and the garage doors up, there's something going on there. I'm going to pull over. And, hey, uh, wh what's going on? You need any help? Oh, no. You know, I've already brought some value to the table. Hey, you need some help. You know, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Well, I saw the house. You got all the doors and windows open. I mean, I'm thinking cats, you know, <laughs> lots of spilled beer or something, right? There's something smelly. Maybe somebody passed away. I don't know. So, uh, hey, well, well, I just happen to be a lo local. Land I always present myself as a local landlord. Hey, I'm just a local landlord. And, you know, I love to buy rental houses and I, you know, it looks like you're having a problem here. What's going on? And, and so you just ask a conversation and you try to get to what, what are the pain point? What's the actual issue that would cause these people to, to consider selling? So if you can find that pain point and agitate that a little bit and then offer a solution, generally you're, you're going to have a better relationship than just I buy houses, I pay cash, right? So, I mean, nobody who owns the burger stand sells, we sell cheap hamburgers, Right. I mean, McDonald's, they do that, but they don't say we sell cheap hamburgers. Hey, we got the dollar menu. Fill you up. It's really delicious. You know us. It's tasty. It's yummy. Right. So I always look at who are the big players in the marketing space and how can I mimic what they do on a smaller scale? Right. McDonald's has had the same commercials. Or sorry. McDonald's has been advertising to their same core demographic children for 50 years or whatever. Right. And they have. There's, there's things in there that connect their message, right? So they always have the, the, the weird clown or the purple guy or, you know, there's something in there and the, you know, the, the, the Whopper or the Big Mac or I don't know who sells, I, I don't even go to McDonald's, I don't know what they sell. Is that Whopper McDonald's? <laughs> I don't want to throw in Burger King stuff here. So, so, but ultimately their goal is to just sell hamburgers, right? So I try to do the same stuff with my marketing. I don't say we pay cash, we buy houses. I say, hey, what's what's going on with your house? Is is there something I can help you out with? Uh, you know, I, I'm in the business of solving these problems, and uh, you know, maybe you could call me and we could talk about it. And and then at the bottom, I have some kind of catchphrases that that are consistent with all my marketing pieces, so it ties them all together. So, oh, I remember that guy because he always puts that in there, right? So I I think that's kind of the key to a successful marketing campaign is. You can touch people five or six times, but if there's no connectivity between those touches, then it's like you got five or six different mailers. So. Great point. Um, how, how, how many different channels are you focused on right now? So you said text. I've heard you say signs, direct mail. Facebook, PPC, driving for dollars, wow. text messages, uh, direct mail. And, and surprisingly, I bought more houses off wholesalers this year than any other source. Really? And and most of those came from Instagram of all places. Get out of here. Really? Yeah, I buy a lot of houses off Instagram. It's very strange. You're not the first person I've heard that from. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna have to look at your hashtag, sir. I, I just copy and paste other people, so I don't know. I'm not good <laughs> at the hashtagging. 
Hey, if it works, who cares? Now my Instagram is, is more business. So there's not a lot of jokes or anything like me picking up, you know, whatever you want to call it, bullying people. It's more, I buy houses is what I do. Walkthroughs of properties that I'm flipping, things like that. So how important is the hyper local angle? And I only bring this up because I owned a property that you were in the neighborhood. You had properties. It's a house. I, my only property I ever bought from Mike Cantu. It was my lesson house. I learned a lot of very painful lessons with the house, but you know the area. How focused are you on specific neighborhoods? There, a wholesaler called me today on a house that's like just on the other side of my hill here. And I was just like, I'm going to buy it and keep it. And I don't, it, it, what I pay for it is, is relevant. You know, I was like, well, at this price point, I can still keep it and make it work. I'll pay more, but I don't want to because then I, I'll almost be forced to, to retail it. And I would hate to let that go. When I moved into this neighborhood, I, I, there's a country club at the top of the hill. And I remember sitting up there one day eating lunch and say, all right, my business model is to get 10 houses in this neighborhood and just rent them out and I'm good. And in 20, well, 15 years, I've never bought another house in the neighborhood and all of my friends have bought houses in the neighborhood. <laughs> like Silvio uh, flipped one right behind me <laughs> and I didn't get that. And all my neighbors, have been, I was the youngest guy by like 20 years. It was a lot of retirees. They've all passed away. All their houses have been sold. Investors have come in and flipped both of the houses on my street. I've not bought any because it, it, you know, I am a numbers guy. So it's as much as I want the deal, I, it's got a pencil out. It's got to work. I just, I don't, I'm not in the business of losing money. And maybe I'm too conservative at some points. I let deals get away. But going through 2007 to 2009, it gives you a different perspective. So there's, I don't want to buy deals anymore, right? I want, I want to get houses that make me money. And, and back then I would take any, I was helium hand, right? Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Right. I, everybody, had a whole idea. I'll take it. Helium hand Aaron. I'll take it. I, I'm not that guy anymore. And I was like, well, eh, you know, I buy it at this price, but, but, as far as rentals go, I mean, I've owned rentals all over the country. There were pros and cons to all of it, but ideally I really like just being here because I have an assistant in my office and she deals with all the management. She can go through annual walkthroughs. It's just a much easier business model when everything's local. And we just don't really have, we got some crazy laws in California that are quite anti-landlord. But if you play by the rules and you run a clean business, you don't have any issues. I've been to eviction court, I don't know, 40, 50 times. I've never lost. I've knocked on some, I hope this is real wood. Yeah. I've, never lost at, I've never lost an eviction. And two times I've had the judges, like one time the judge says, you know, Mr. Mazzarella, we need more people like you in this business. You provide affordable housing to people. California courts appreciate you and what you do. I was like, wow, that was cool. I never expected that. And another time, that writing? <laughs> yeah, another yeah, like a photo with him. Another time, he pointed at the at the plaintiff. I mean, at the defendant and said, "You are a parasite." I couldn't believe he said it. The whole car was like, "Oh!" And I was like, "He's right. You are." Yeah, he said it. You're a parasite, right? Uh, so they're not anti-landlord here. They're pro-landlord if you follow the rules that they've laid out. If you follow the rules, they're going to be on your side. And like I said, I've yet to go to court and have it not go my way, but we, we do the proper paperwork, correct filings, everything's in order. And there's always a legitimate reason. I mean, I want my tenants to stay and pay. I don't want to throw them out, but they got to go because they're doing something that, you know, is not in the guidelines of what they agreed to do. So. COVID-19 has caused some interesting things in the Inland Empire. I, I'm hearing some investors say that flips are getting 50 to 100 grand more than they were expecting when they started the project. Are, are you seeing that? And how comfortable 
are you with that headed into 2021? So they still need to appraise. And it's not likely in the Inland Empire, you're going to get people who throw down and say no appraisal contingency, at least not at the price point that I play in. And I'm really pro FHA. The government's given away a lot of money. They're the new subprime, maybe 3%, 3.5% down. Uh, these people, the day they close escrow, they're upside down. They can't sell their house, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're negative equity at that point, right? But uh, so that's really my business model because worst case scenario, I'm stuck with a couple of rentals that, that I probably don't want, but I can easily, I can, my, my portfolio can carry them. So that's why I like that business model. If you're in Orange County or if you're maybe in the middle, higher end, then yeah, you can see that. But every single house that I've bought, I, I expected it to sell for X when I bought it. When I listed it, I listed it for X plus 10% and the offers are X plus 10% plus another 10% on top of that. So we're, we're making a lot of upside bonus money in the tune of 10 to 20%. I have one in Banning of all places, <clears throat> probably the last affordable bastion in Southern California. I bought it thinking I'd sell it for 220. We're in escrow for 237. It's, it's pending. I had an agent go and show it and said, hey, we're going to just slide this in just in case it falls out, 257, which is crazy, right? That's crazy. And on my 220 price, I'm still making, I bought it thinking I'd make probably, I don't like to do less than like, it has to have a minimum of 25 grand or I'm not going to do the deal. That's, that's my bottom line number. So that one was probably like 30, 35. And now, you know, we're, we're 17 grand more. Uh, on the first offer and then, you know, 30, whatever, 37 grand more on the second offer. So, and I've been seeing that pretty consistently. Most deals that I've been selling, even on my FHA entry level, they're well, 40, 40 to a hundred grand profit per deal. So you've got to to do like 10 and um, I try to keep 10 in the works at all times and I'm not flipping 10 a month. I'm not making that statement. I do 10 a month. Don't ever believe that. (laughs) I try to do 10 at all times. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes I get more, sometimes I less. You know, everybody who's listened to me a little bit will hear me use the uh, grocery analogy, right? Like the way a grocery store makes money, they have very small margins, but they're turning their inventory a lot of year. And I, I alluded to that earlier. How long does it, what's your average time from the time you buy it, put the money out to the time you're out of the deal? 165 days. 165 days. From close to close. So I have a contractor. I only use one contractor. It's two brothers. They're both licensed. If I brought on another contract, I could probably turn deals faster because I have my, my contractor also doing, I I do other stuff other than just flip houses. So I have, I don't know if you've seen my development project downtown. So I mean, this is a $400,000 rehab. So I'm do, I do other things besides just the turn and burn on the, on the FHA houses but I like relationships. I'm as faithful as a dog. My cat is 21 years old. Okay. I've been married for like 22 years. I, I just, I, I find what I like. I, my wife went out of town one time and I, I was like, at the time I was like, a, like not vegetarian, but you know, not eating a lot of red meat. I ate tofu hot dogs every day for 30 days straight. Like I, you know, like I find my thing and I just stick with it, <laughs> which is good. Like if you do business with me, I can probably get cheaper money, but I have my guy and he's a great guy. And I just, I don't care. Oh, you got eight, seven, three, but I got my guy. He's 10%. I love that guy. I'm just going to call him because he makes it easy. 
right? So I just, I, I have my things that I like and I stick with them. So yeah, I could probably get them turned faster, but I have my guy and he does a great job for me. So I just stick with him. It sounds like this happened for you naturally because it's your personality, right? But like one of the things that um, we see when we look at our customers who are really successful, right, is they put in place systems and repeatable processes. It sounds like that's just a natural thing for you. Is that something you focus on at all? Or, you know, is that something you build into your businesses? So the conversation I had with with my, I have a, an acquisitions guy that works for me. I had a conversation I had with him right before this call is, I said, look, we're getting these text messages back, right? There's going to be the, these, you're going to see this, this uh, consistent responses. And I don't know how many there are because we haven't quite figured that out yet, but there's going to be a consistency in, in this response. Every once in a while you get the, the off, off, you know, color one or whatever, but generally they're going to be, you know, one of so many things. So we, we need to build out like a tree, right? So if we get this response, then the next response from us should be this. And then the next response would be, so we can build out this, this reply tree, and then we can create this marketing that, that essentially takes us out of the game. And it's an automated, so off like, uh, uh, you ever play that guessing game, 20 questions, Right. So if it's, well, is it that? No, well, it must be this or that. Right. So, so yeah, when I was in the window business, uh, we had a lot of different uh, materials. So there was aluminum, there was vinyl, and then there was different colors. And then there were different types of glass. Well, my, my friend started the business and, and we were just wholesalers. We were selling other manufacturer stuff. And, and then they brought me in as sales. So we didn't have anything. We didn't have any forms or anything like that. And so maybe you call me, you want to order like bronze aluminum windows. So I'd have to create a new sheet and put in like the, all the heat gain and the sound things and fill all that out. And then, you know, you call up and you want vinyl windows and oh, I do that, you know, and then I, I ship those bids out and then I get a, I was like, man, why do I keep recreating this stuff? Why don't I just have a form that says all the information for bronze aluminum windows with low E glass and white aluminum windows with low E glass. So yeah, I've, I've always been uh, the McDonaldization of things it's always been at my core and, and not because I'm extremely efficient. It's because I'm extremely lazy. I don't want to do this stuff. Right. <laughs> so I just, I want to make it super easy. Like, you know, medium chocolate shake, there's a button, you just push and put the cup and you know, as long as you got the right size cup, you're good to go. That's the way your business should be run. Like, Oh, somebody comes in and you know, here's a house, this neighborhood. We, we know, I, I say like I, from a cold call, I know nothing about the house. From the time the phone rings, I can have you an offer within 10 minutes because of the system that I've created. I have a spreadsheet totally dialed in. Every, all I have to do is change the square foot. I change the square foot. So whatever Redfin or the MLS says, uh, based on the size of the house, the age and the location, what that rehab budget might be and have done enough house, I'm usually pretty good at guessing that. I never go look at any of these houses. And then I will add in like a rehab premium, like, oh, it needs a new roof. That's going to be an extra eight or 10 grand. It has a swimming pool. That's an extra eight grand. So I have this. So those three numbers, if I change those, that's all I need to do. And I can have an offer. It tells me what I should pay, like the most I should pay. So yeah, I, I like to systematize things only so that I don't have to work. And then it allows me to have way more time to go do the things that I, I mean, I truly enjoy and love real estate. If you stop me on the street and start talking about real estate, my wife would go crazy. Like, will you shut up already? Stop. You know, I, I can't stop talking about, but I also like to do other things, you know? And so if I can focus in and get this all dialed in and then go on with the rest of my day, that's, that's great for me. 
You said you have it as an assistant and I know you're your sales guy. Uh, how about your, uh, the, the guys doing your rehabs? Do you have a technology stack to sort of keep on top of that or do you let them handle that on their own? So my assistant does that. Uh, you know, I'm not out picking colors and, you know, taking Facebook photos or any of that. I mean, once in a while, if I have to go for a walkthrough because I'm meeting an architect or uh, there's a design change in the plans, then I will go and, you know, opportunity presents itself. I'll take some photos of both. Hey, here's some stuff that I'm doing. But yeah, we, we manage it all on Slack. So every channel is a property. And, and it's great because you can go to that one specific channel and get all the data, the entire history of that rehab. So the bids go in, all the photos go in, updates go in. My acquisition guy has to go. We try to get him out there once a week to walk all the jobs. Uh, my assistant will... Uh, at the beginning of every week, she's like, what did you get done last week? And what do you expect to get done this week? Right? So then we can check, well, all right, what happened here? Why did you not get the windows done? Or, oh, they, they forgot to order them or whatnot. Right? We can kind of keep track of that. So yeah, everything's done on Slack. And we, I never go to the jobs. I try not to. I want to see them usually when they're done, I'll go out to do my agent's visual inspection because I am a broker and I do sell my own listings because it's extremely easy. It's one trip to the house, do the agent's visual walkthrough and 20 to 30 minutes to do all the disclosures. And, you know, agents, you're paying people two and a half, three percent 3% for that. That's, you're giving away way too much money. It's so easy to do this. So. It's a good thing you're after Patrick Ferry, who just covered that same sentiment. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no reason to be listing your in-house flips with an agent. It's not going to happen. So I kind of want to talk about data. I mean, data driven and it, and it yeah. we're such a data driven society now, right? It, we're like, so here's a, a great thing that I was thinking last night. I, I, I pull in a, to, to, I have the Starbucks app on my phone, right? I don't know if Target has an app, but you know, I have Google Maps on my phone. I have Facebook on my phone, right? So I pull in a, the, to the Starbucks parking lot and I'm thinking, man, they, they, they know where I am, right? Somebody's tracking this and software's tracking this. Why am I not getting hit with a, a coupon? Hey, Aaron, we got a venti soy latte waiting for you. Five bucks instead of five fifty. Come get it right now. Oh yeah, I'll take that and walk in and grab my starter. Right, and then I'm walking her through the store, and they know. Oh, you're at you're at Target because you buy. I don't know what. I don't really ever go to Target, but I was there for a toothbrush last night. Which, <laughs> but generally I don't go there. But if you do go there a lot, you know, like maybe you buy cat litter. Hey, you know, you must be here for cat litter. Hey, we got cat toys on special. Buy you know buy cat litter, get you know fifty percent. You know, so I, I think you can take. I see the world going that that direction where I don't know why they're not doing that already. And everybody blindly signs users agreements so they could just slide that in like, hey, you give us the right to market to you when you're in the parking lot of the stores that, that are on board with us. You can get to that point with data, right? So I'm sure you've been online non-business at some point today, each of you, right? We've each done something, right? Had to check some return or whatever, or bought something or check the news on the on the on uh, the, the, the election, you're essentially leaving behind a, a digital thumbprint, right? So everything you do online is tracked. Everything is tracked. Everything, I mean, I like to say Facebook knows when you take a dump, right? Because that's that's the 10 or 15 minutes a day where suddenly you stopped moving, right? And you're scrolling, 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 right? So they, they know, right? So they, they might hit you at that time and say, hey, you like to buy, you know, Marshall toilet paper. Here's a good, oh man, I am fresh out of that. I mean, hit that button, buy that right there. But they know everything about you. Well, you're, you're here a little too long. Here's a softener product. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> Every, everything going okay there? <laughs> I was like, hey. <laughs> so, but you can essentially do the same thing with your with your 
I like to call them suspects. They're not a, they're, they're a prospect when they call or they contact me until then they're a suspect. Like, are they a seller? I don't know. Right. So though, so we have suspects, prospects, right? So they're suspect. You can do that with your suspects. So, you know, we're hitting them on Facebook, right? And there's, there's, uh, you can do redirection where they go to some other site and, you know, your ads start showing up there. Um, there's just ways to track these people and, and find them. So my brother's, he's a software developer. He's worked for the government. And so I, I reached out to him. It's like, you need to create a platform where, you know, people take all these leads that they, they've skipped traced. They can't get a good email or a phone number for them. And then you can start giving back, Hey, you know, well, here's their Instagram account. Here's the Facebook profile. Here's, you know, and people would pay good money for that. I would, I mean, I'd pay five, $10 a lead for, for that kind of data. It's interesting, you know, we had, we offered the Facebook profiles for a while and there was a company that specialized in that and um, they got into a pretty big cease and desist, potential lawsuit, et cetera. So um, Zuckerberg. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the, the, you know, and then, you know, like Facebook's fairly easy to do the matching on, but they're pretty aggressive about it. Right. And we're seeing more and more laws like CCPA and the rest. So, you know, for us, cause we're in that business of like helping you say, okay, I'm looking for these types of owners and I want to create a custom audience so that I can, I can market to them online. Like that's a feature we have, but there's definitely a, a fine line, right. With CCPA, um, California just uh, voted for CPRA, which kind of takes that up, um, you know, adds some more requirements for privacy for companies like ours. You know, it requires, you know, we spent with CPA, but I, I think the industry spent something like $50 billion um, to get ready for the CCPA and do not sell information. And I think most folks... The problem is, is everybody says they care about privacy, but people like you kind of said, they just click through on the agreements and they don't everybody their information. Right. And, you know, and so they, they don't take any actions to show they, they actually care about their privacy. It's like everybody, if you ask people, you know, is your birthday private data? You go, yeah, it's private data. But then right on Facebook, people are saying, Hey, happy birthday. Right. And th- there's your birth date and there's how old you are. Right. Like, so, and, and what's crazy about like that is, so we get these laws that say, okay, if you're a, a legitimate U S business, you can't use the, that birthday that this person posted online for the world, but nothing stopped in North Korea or any company in any other country from using it and selling their goods online including you online or on the dark web, right? Because California, the U.S. doesn't have control over those companies. And it's the internet. And we've decided we're not going to censor the internet. So nothing stops those companies from selling it to you here. And there's nothing those laws can do. So they're kind of just anti, it's a tough problem. But so far, the privacy laws that we're seeing are just anti-U.S. company, anti-U.S. business laws because they don't stop. When you post your stuff online, it's online. It's public. And so anyways, it's a I totally agree with you. And uh, but it's it's not we have hundreds of thousands of dollars invested into our privacy compliance, into our do not call compliance. We have large systems. We have dedicated people 
that if you say, do not sell my information, we're going to go research it and we're going to make sure we don't sell it. And we do compliance and there's audits and like people don't understand like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go skip trace. And like half the people selling this stuff aren't compliant with the law. And it's mm. really hard. I, I, the one that provides me, I asked him, Hey, do you, do you have the DNC, the do not call? No, we, we don't offer that. Like, wait a minute, you're selling all this data. You have no idea what I'm going to do with it. And then you don't even filter out the litigators, like the people that are on the list. You do, they're like, no, we don't do that. That's, that's on you. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's right. We don't, we don't offer do not call. Right. And it's, but here's, here's the thing, right? So you say, do we offer do not call? I can't offer do not call unless you pay for it. So it's actually illegal for me to provide you do not call unless you are a do not call subscriber as a marketer. And what you have to do, you get one area code for free, but nobody lives by area code. People move into your area and they bring their phone with them from all over the US. Do you know what your cost, Aaron, is to be compliant with do not call? Oh. And you have to do it. I, even if I provide it to you, for me to legally provide it to you, you have to do it. $16,000 a year wow. is, is what you would have to pay to do it legally. Wow. So it's, it's, you know, it's a fat, I mean, we could spend the whole rest of the conversation on this, but so for me to legally provide you do not call, you have to be a do not call subscriber and you have to pay the fee $16,000 a year. Oh man. Sorry. I didn't mean to blow your mind. It's, this is we no, can talk about they, this. Topic it's all just day. amazing that they put these restrictions on you and then they make it very difficult to meet those restrictions. It's like we have speed limits, but also we sell our Ferraris. <laughs> <laughs> Like, wait, what? Yeah, there's Ferraris. And if you want a governor on it, so you're within the speed limit, you're going to have to pay a 16 grand. Wait a minute. That, that doesn't make any sense. We're about up on t- time, unfortunately. What are, you, what are you excited about for 2021? What are you going to be focused on? Uh, man, well, I'm trying to buy a building. Uh, you know, if you're in real estate and you're not seriously looking at these SBA loans, I don't know. seems like you're missing a big opportunity. They're like... It's, it's two loans, uh, first and a second. The first is like three and three quarter percent. The second's like two and a half percent, 25 year fixed, fully amortized. So if you're running a real estate office and you're renting space and you're not considering buying, you only have to occupy 51% of the space. If you're not considering buying your own building, I think you're missing out. So that's that's what I've been focused on. I've spent a lot of time door knocking building owners as weird as that sounds i've been doing that uh so uh, yeah i looked at a couple uh one in downtown riverside uh another one over here uh, near the free uh, the 60 freeway uh so i'm trying to find some legit office space to move my business into and capture one of those 25 and i'm not buying the office space so much as i'm trying to get a million dollars at two and a two and a half or two and a quarter percent for 25 years I mean, it's a money play, right? Because the government's, I don't know how many trillions of dollars they're printing and just giving away. And I recently heard like these loans, uh, anything under 50 grand that they gave out, they're going to forgive. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm so glad I got some of that money. Uh, yeah, they're going to give it away. And that that has to cause some inflationary reaction to the market, to the, to, to the dollar, right? So if I can grab... Uh, seven figures at two and a quarter percent and inflation is three, four, 5% a year. Uh, I'm way ahead of the game. So I'm focused on buying a building and, and doing more, more apartments. I just, 
Howard and uh, hired an architect to do, uh, uh, I own a small building that I'm going to knock down and build, a, uh, well, I don't know. They said 11 units, but I think it's too many. We'll probably go like eight. So, and then looking for more of those opportunities. I got another one that I'm looking at uh, a little bit further east uh, in the state of California, but just further east of my location uh, that's on the market that looks like a good play as well. So, yeah. Mintone, Blythe? Not that far east. Not that far east. <laughs> I'm, shop, I'm shopping as well right now for same thing, business for uh, expansion for us in other areas. So uh, yeah, and, and just for my personal portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Second yeah. Look, I mean, they're giving away money. Why are you not taking it? So yeah. So it's all about capturing low cost money while they're giving away because, you know, we're in a time where they're giving all the money away and nobody's taking it, but they all like, man, I can't wait to get back to 2009 number of prices on houses because they're giving away houses. It's like, well, the opportunity is here, but you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at $300,000 houses, expecting them to crash for I don't know what reason, so they can go back to 2009 prices, so you can take advantage of something that's not going to happen again, when the opportunity is not a house play, now it's a money play. So you should be focused on, like, how can I capture more money, right? So I have a friend who's like, I haven't written an offer less than $10 million in like 18 months. I mean, he's buying big apartment buildings, and the rates on those just keep getting lower and lower. And he's like, man, these things just keep getting better and better. So that's all money plays right now. Grab the money. Awesome. Well, well it was fun. And, and you have to check out Aaron on Facebook and Instagram. I will definitely post. Uh, my favorite is when you call out lazy professionals. Um, in quotes, uh, if you're listening to this, in quotes, uh, where you take snapshots of ridiculous things, particularly that agents do that drive you bonkers. And it, I laugh. <laughs> I'm on the other end laughing hysterically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think... If you're going to follow Aaron on uh, in, uh, Facebook, it is a great resource for uh, investors, but you've got to be okay with not politically correct all the time, right? Is that a fair I, statement? I, I think I actually think I'm like, have something wrong with me. <laughs> like this, but yeah, there's like some like people like you have no filter. I'm like, I don't even understand that. Like, <laughs> so I just think like maybe genetically I have something that's slightly off where my you know, I, I look at everything as entertainment and if, if you can't laugh at it, then why deal with it? Right. So I, I will say though, I'm, I'm surprised. Right. Cause I think you've offended, you, you say things that I, I would think maybe people would take offense of on both sides. And, uh, but you do it in such a way that I don't see a lot of blowback in your channel. <laughs> so like, I think people realize you're saying it with a smile, even though, you know, it, it is. Uh, so anyways, it's a fun follow. Uh, if, if you want followers, I assume you want followers. Yeah, why not? You know, come or go. I have this app on my on Facebook that tells you who who's like removed you from their account every day. It's like, you know, this guy's blocked you, blocked you. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why I wasn't trying to be me. Just having a good time over here. So hey, it's one less holiday want. card you have to send. Yeah, you where where do they follow you? Where do people follow you? Where can they learn more about you? So I, I mean, there's only one Aaron Mesrell in the world. It's a very uncommon name. So that's me on on uh, Facebook, and I'm Aaron the House Buyer on Instagram. So that's probably, that's the only social media accounts I have. I look at TikTok, but man, that is just the the garbage pit of humanity. I found no value in that at all. It was horrid. Yeah. If I had a, my daughter's five, but if she were older, I would just, that, I would never let her have that on her phone. That is just, it's complete trash. So yeah, not on TikTok. I'm not going to be there, but Instagram, I like. Instagram is really good. It's really great for businesses too. Right? Aaron has no strong opinions. <laughs> not at all. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. This has been awesome.
Hey, my pleasure. Always great talking to you guys. And hopefully I get up there and we can fish the Truckee one day. So uh, Come up anytime. I have space for you. And uh, the Truckee River is uh, just a couple blocks away and there's lots of fishing. You're killing me. You're killing me. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Anytime, really. Thank you so much. I make so much money off it every year. We use it constantly. So I, I appreciate you for putting that out there. It's like extremely valuable to my business. So Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Hey, have a great day, guys. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.